Thank you for listening to this sermon by Grace Point Church. If you'd like to learn more, visit our website at gracepointaz.com, or better yet, come be our guest on a Sunday morning. Amen. Well, church, go ahead and grab a seat. When Jesus first began his public ministry, one of the very first people that he approached and told who he really was, one of the very first people that he told that he really was the promised Messiah that God was sending was a woman from Samaria. The Apostle John tells us that this woman was abused, that she was ashamed, that she was a sinner who was in desperate need for mercy, desperate need of grace, that she didn't even know exactly what she was looking for. She just knew that she was in need. And when Jesus approached her at that well in Samaria, according to John, it tells us that Jesus did three things that really should stop us in our tracks once we really understand what it is he's doing for her and what it is he's inviting her into. See, to this woman at the well, The first thing that Jesus did was he invited her into relationship. He invited her to draw near and to engage with him at a real level, which was unheard of at the time. But he didn't stop there. No, he moved on and he took another step. And after he invited her into relationship, he gave her the gift of naming her suffering. He named her suffering. He called it what it was. He gave her the gift of calling her pain by name because he knew that if she continued to suffer in silence, well, then she was going to continue to suffer alone and she would never experience true peace. But after that, after he invited her into relationship, after he named her suffering, he gave her the gift of of not being shocked by her sin and by what was revealed when they started to talk, but instead he simply offered her God's salvation. Again, he invited her into relationship, he named her suffering, and he offered her salvation. Church, that is what our King does because that is who our King is. And the reason that I wanted to start there this morning by just remembering this story from John's gospel is because of where we're heading in Micah chapter four. This morning, we're gonna be studying Micah four, six to 13 together. And so if you've got a Bible, I'd love for you to go ahead and turn there so that you can follow along and and dig in with us as we open God's word together. And as you find that though, I just wanna remind you of where we left off last time we were in Micah chapter four. At the beginning of Micah 4, like we saw a couple of weeks ago, the the prophet really turned the corner from focusing primarily on God's justice to focusing primarily on God's mercy. That is, it's not just true that, that sin has to be punished. It's also true that sin can always be forgiven. Sin can always be forgiven. That is, just because that's true, just because God's promises to forgive everyone who puts their faith in Jesus, right? Just because it's true that God saves us by grace through faith and lets us live with him forever, just because those are the realities of the gospel that we live in. Well, that still doesn't mean though, right, that that it's gonna be easy until we get to that point. And what Micah showed us at the beginning of chapter four is that God's kingdom cannot be stopped, which means that we have to choose our king wisely. And now as we turn the corner here in verse six, as we pick up in the middle of this chapter four of Micah, what he's going to show us this morning is that just like that woman at the well, we have suffered long enough under the hands of lesser kings. We've suffered long enough at the hands of lesser kings. We have been broken. We have been shamed. We have been lied to and taken advantage of. We have been abandoned by all of the idols of our hearts, the things that we look to, the things that we run to over and over again, hoping that they're gonna give us identity, hoping that those are the things that are gonna give us meaning and purpose and life. But if we're honest, we've gotta realize that we have been hoping that in vain. And what all of us are desperate for is a king who will reign over us, 
both in justice and in mercy. Again, we need a king who comes to us and meets us right where we are, who sees us just as we are and invites us into our relationship with him. A king who will name our suffering and not be shocked by our sin, but instead offer us salvation. And the good news that Micah has for us in this text is that God has sent this king, the king that all of us are so desperate for and that nothing will ever be the same again. And so if you would, I invite you to pray with me and then we're gonna jump into this text together. Father, thank you that you come to us when we can't get to you. Thank you that you don't stand and wait, but that you come and pursue. Thank you that Jesus came to give us all that we need and to do all that is necessary to restore us to relationship with you and to make us holy and spotless and blameless forever in your sight because of his blood shed for us and his resurrection that gives us victory. Father, fill us with your spirit this morning. Meet us here. Speak loud and clear in Christ through the word by your spirit to our souls and give us grace to submit to this good, hard word and receive all that you have for us because we need you to speak, and we long to draw near so that you will draw near to us just like you promised. And we ask, all, we ask you to do all of these things in the name of Christ our King. Amen. Well, again, we are in Micah chapter 4, verses 6 through 13, if you would read that along with me. Micah says this, In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted. And the lame I will make the remnant, and those who were cast off a strong nation, and the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. And you, O tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you shall it come, the former dominion shall come, kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem. Now, why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished that pain seized you like a woman in labor? Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor, for now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. There you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. Now, many nations are assembled against you saying, let her be defiled and let our eyes gaze upon Zion. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan that he has gathered them as sheaves to the threshing floor. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make your horn iron and I will make your hoofs bronze. You shall beat in pieces many peoples and shall devote their gain to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord of the whole earth. All right, so if you remember a couple of weeks ago, we saw at the beginning of Micah chapter four that Micah sets everything he's saying here and what he calls the latter days. And we talked about how the New Testament teaches that these latter days or the last days started when Jesus came. And that's really important for us to keep in mind here as we pick up in verse six, because as Micah picks up there with a timestamp of in that day, what he's doing us is, 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 here is he's telling us that this prophecy is still a promise of what God was going to do when he sent his Messiah, when he sent Christ. In other words, the, the shepherd king that God had promised back in chapter two, is the same Messiah that he is still promising to send to deliver his people here in chapter four. And what he is promising to deliver them from is important. Because see, he's promising to deliver them from every form of suffering. From every form of suffering, whether it is physical, emotional, or spiritual. Look again at what God promises in verses six and seven. He says, in that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted. And the lame, I will make the remnant and those who were cast off a strong nation and the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth 
and forevermore. Again, when God says he's going to assemble the lame, that he's going to make them a remnant, he is promising here that there is going to be an end to their physical suffering. And when God says that he's going to gather those who have been driven away and make those who are cast off into a strong nation, he's promising that their emotional suffering and the shame of their exile simply will not be the end of the story for God's people. And then when God says that he is going to draw near those whom he has afflicted and that he is going to reign over them forever, he is promising that even their spiritual suffering, this affliction which God himself had caused as a result, as a consequence, as a discipline for their sin, he's saying that even that was not gonna be able to stop his saving purpose in their lives. And why? Well, it's because when Jesus reigns over us, his peace reigns in us. When Jesus reigns over us, his peace reigns in us. See, through Micah, God invites us to draw near. He is inviting us to take a step into relationship. And he is giving us the great gift of naming our suffering, our physical, emotional, and spiritual suffering. And as he does that, he tells us that our pain doesn't have to be the thing that defines us. Because in Christ, in the Messiah, we can know that because of what he has done and because of who he is, we can be certain that the pain that we experience will give way to peace. Because of Christ, we know that our pain is going to give way to peace. But church, that can only happen when Jesus is reigning as the unrivaled king. And that is exactly what God promises is going to happen in verse eight, when he says, and you, O tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you shall it come. The former dominion shall come, kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem. Now, there's a lot going on here in this verse, but I just wanna highlight two things in particular to make sure that we have our heads together as we continue to move forward through this text. And the first thing I wanna make sure that we see together is the tenderness of God. We need to see the tenderness of our God who speaks here to his people as a loving father addressing a daughter who is in pain. In fact, this is massively important. If we're gonna be able to hear the rest of what Micah is saying in this chapter, the way that God intends for us to hear it. God is speaking as a loving father to a daughter that he cares about so deeply and he sees her in pain. And then second, we need to ask what this former dominion is here that God is talking about in this verse. And to really get that, to really understand this former dominion, we have to back up just a little bit and set the stage with just a little context. See, at this point in history, Micah was working as a prophet about 300 years after David had reigned as king in Jerusalem. But, but in that time, since David's reign, God's people had not, forgotten, had not forgotten his promises. They hadn't forgotten his promises to David. They hadn't forgotten his promises to them through King David, who they still look back to as the quintessential, this is the foundational king. We're waiting for someone to come who was like that. And really the, the promises of God all came down to two. There was the conditional promise that God gave to David in 1 Kings 2 verse 4, where God told David that if his sons were faithful to the Lord, he said, then you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. Your line will continue forever. They're going to keep on reigning right on until the Messiah comes and takes over and takes it from there. Right? That was the conditional promise that if they were faithful, there would never lack a man on the throne of Israel in David's line. But there was also an unconditional promise. There was also a much bigger overarching promise that God gave in 2 Samuel 7, 16, where God told David, your throne will be established forever. It's going to happen. Nothing can stop it. You can't break this. You can't make this. Uh, un, uh, you cannot undo this. In other words, if David and his sons, again, obeyed the Lord, 
then the line of kings would be unbroken until the Messiah came. But if they disobeyed, if they rebelled against him, if they turned their backs on him, like we know they did over and over, then God said that their line was going to be broken, but that it would be restored. And church, that is what Micah is telling us is happening here in verse eight. See, David's sons had been disobedient. They had led the people in rebellion against the Lord. And so God was gonna cut them off. He was gonna take away their kingship. But one day, one day, this former dominion was gonna be restored when the true king, when God's promised Messiah came to establish his peace in the hearts of his people. And really that is what the rest of this text is all about. Again, Micah wants to help us see that when Jesus reigns over us, his peace reigns in us. But what does that really look like? I mean, what does it really mean for the peace of Christ to reign in us? Well, as Micah unpacks that for us, he shows us that even in the midst of suffering, even in the middle of our pain, when Jesus reigns, his peace does three things. His peace purifies, his peace protects, and finally, his peace prevails. First then, when Jesus reigns over us, because he is a holy king, his peace purifies. Look again at how Micah shows us this in verses nine and 10. He asks, now, why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished that pain seized you like a woman in labor? Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion. Like a woman in labor, for now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. All right, so what Micah is really doing here is he is just spelling out in detail what he has really only been hinting at up to this point. This is back all the way in chapter one. He told them that their children were gonna be going into exile. And he's referred to that several times and in several different ways over the last few chapters as we've seen this last few weeks. But this is really the first time that Micah removes it from the poetic language that he'd been using, the, the kind of Hebrew poetry and illusion that he'd been using up to this point. And he says it just concretely to them, you shall go to Babylon. You shall go to Babylon. It's absolutely unmistakable, right? There is no way that the people could hear this and try to think, oh, well, hopefully that means something else, right? But, but if this is supposed to be such a tender passage, if this really is a father speaking to his daughter who is in pain, well, then, then why would God say this? Why would he do this? Why wouldn't he just ignore the pain or at least not focus on it and just focus in on the positives and try to encourage the people instead? Well, the reason for that is because God is a much better father and God is a much better friend than we are. And he knows that there can be no tenderness without truth. There could be no tenderness without also having truth. What I mean is that, that Jesus is a holy king. And so he has no rivals. That's clearly established. But the longer that we refuse to believe that, the longer we resist him, the more we need him to remind us where that path of rebellion and where that path of resistance ultimately leads. Again, that that means there, there has to be then tenderness and truth together because you can't have one without the other. And so he asks his people here, pictured as a young woman, to really consider why it is she's crying. He's asking them to consider why are you crying? And first he asks, was it because she had no king? Is it because she had no king? Well, the answer here is, is not really, right? Because they had kings. The line of David had not yet been broken, but we also know from Micah and from other contexts that the kings had become so wicked and they had been wicked and rebellious for so long that they were simply not leading the people where they needed to go. They were leading them away from God instead of toward him. And so it wasn't that she didn't have a king, it's that their kings were wickedly leading them away from God. 
And then he asked, was she crying because she had no counselors? Okay, maybe it's not the kings then. Maybe it's the counselors. Is it because she has no counselors? And again, that's, that's not quite the, the, the solution, right? That's not quite accurate because the prophets and the priests, they were all still in their roles. They were still fulfilling their function. We just know that they were liars and thieves, that everything that they were saying, the counseling, the counseling they were offering to the people was leading them again away from God's truth and into lies. In other words, she, she wasn't crying because of a lack of kings. She wasn't crying out and desperate because she didn't have counselors. No, she was desperate because she had been following and listening to all of the wrong people and going away from God instead of moving toward him. And as a result, as a result of that rebellion, as a result of being led astray, there was going to have to be some hard truth spoken. And there was going to have to be some violent, hard grace shown before the pain of sin finally gave way to the peace of God. And here, Micah speaks with one voice, with every other prophet, every other apostle throughout the scriptures, who inspired by the Holy Spirit, tell us over and over again, from beginning to the end of God's word, what God sums up very clearly in Isaiah 48, verses 10 and 11, when he says, Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction for my own sake, For my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory, I will not give to another. And then when we get to the New Testament, in the book of Hebrews chapter 12, we read a very similar description. And he just frames it in the the context of a father and his children. And he says, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have all had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Church, this concept of God's discipline, this text in particular here in Hebrews chapter 12 is one of the most difficult and most important texts, I would argue, really in the entire Bible. And it is so hard and it is so important for exactly the same reason. Both of those are true because of how much and how often we need to hear exactly this. See, what Hebrews 12 really helps us see is that just like exile in Babylon for the daughter of Jerusalem back in Micah 4, all suffering really is used by God to purify his people. Whether it's emotional, physical, or spiritual, all suffering is used by God as a good father to purify his people. In fact, that's why in John 16, when Jesus was trying to help his disciples really understand, really get their minds around and prepare for what was coming at the cross, He used the same image that Micah uses, this image of a woman in labor. And he tells them, you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. And church, what all of this shows us is that as a king who reigns over and loves sinners, As a king who reigns over and loves sinners, Jesus isn't just Lord of our peace. He is also Lord of our pain. 
He isn't just the Lord of our peace. He is the Lord of our pain. And because of the tenderness of his love for us, he is committed to doing whatever it takes, whatever it costs to make us more like him so that we can share in his peace. And so before we move on this morning, I just wanna pause here and consider two questions. First, are you being honest about your suffering? Are you being honest about your suffering? And second, are you, are you being hopeful even in your suffering? Are you being honest about it? And are you being hopeful in the middle of it? And I want us to make sure that we don't miss here that both of those questions are vitally important because if we're not honest about our suffering, then there's a good chance that we're gonna miss out on God's purifying peace, that we're gonna miss it because we're trying to deny it, because we're trying to avoid it, because we're trying to escape. And so we've gotta face it, we've gotta be honest, we've gotta press in, and if Jesus calls it by name, so can we, and we can trust him that he's gonna be good no matter what we might face. Are we being honest in our suffering? And then, fine. and then second, are we being hopeful in our suffering? See, so often we are tempted to look for shortcuts, right? We wanna find shortcuts to relief, to look for, for comfort from the world and the flesh and the devil, to try to escape the things that hurt so bad and are so deep instead of just trusting God's purifying purpose and holding on to him no matter what may come. But he's inviting us to both of these things, trusting that his grace is sufficient for us. Again, church, when Jesus reigns over us, his peace reigns in us. And because he's a holy king, his peace purifies us. But it never stops there. It never stops there. And as we continue, what Micah helps us see is that because Jesus is also a loving king, his peace protects us. Because he's a loving king, his peace protects. That's why Micah adds in verse 10, that there, that is from Babylon, there he says, you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. Now, as we get closer to that event in biblical history, to the exile to Babylon, we learn that that exile was gonna last 70 years. And then after that time, we know that God was gonna bring repentance to his people, at least in part, that he was going to restore them and redeem them, bring them back to the land and reestablish them in Jerusalem and the surrounding region as they rebuilt the temple and tried to re-engage in relationship with God. But, but Micah isn't just giving us that specific promise here. He's also giving us a much, much bigger picture and giving us a general principle. And that principle that we need to grab here is that for God's people, all of our enemies are also God's enemies. All of our enemies are also God's enemies. And the reality for us is the reality for God. God always wins. And that means we can be certain of his victory and of his protection. Again, that means that because Jesus is a loving king, his peace protects us no matter what or who may stand against us. And it means that there is nothing and no one that we need to fear because we don't face any of the dangers in this life alone. Now, as a dad, one of the ways that I have seen this principle in action most often in my own life is with my kids. If you've been a parent before, then you know that this is part of how God uses us just to teach us the principles and the realities of, of who he really is, right? He shows us his love. He shows us his care in so many ways through the love and care we feel and show to our children. But one of the simplest, one of the clearest ways that I've seen of how God cares for us came in how I used to hold my kids' hands when they were little. Whenever we were in a parking lot, whenever we were near a busy street, anywhere where it could be dangerous for them to be walking independently, I'd always tell them to come over and hold my hand. But we would always do that the same exact way. I would reach down and I would just put my finger, I'd say, hold my hand, and they knew to grab onto my finger. And I would tell them to hold it tight. But then when they did that, I would wrap my hand around their entire hand because I loved them too much 
to make their safety, to make their security dependent on their grip on me. I love them too much to leave it there and just hold my finger down and say, if you can hold on, you'll be safe. And if not, it's all up to you. I don't know what might happen. No, I love them too much to make their safety depending on their grip on me. Instead, it was my grip on them and my hand wrapped around theirs that made sure that they were safe and made sure that they stayed by my side. And so yes, I would tell them, hold my hand, grab my finger, hold on tight, but they were never safe because of their grip on me. Now they're only safe because of my grip on them. And church, in the exact same way, we've got to ask when, when our enemies, the world and the flesh and the devil, when those, when those enemies stand against us, and when the dangers of sin, death, and hell seem like they are going to overwhelm us, where are we looking for peace? Where are we looking for protection? Are we putting our trust and our hope and looking for peace in how tightly we are holding on to God? Or are we trusting in how tightly he is holding on to us? Again, true peace, true protection from enemy, every enemy that we face, from every danger that we encounter. These can only come once we know that our God holds us and he will never let us go. Church, whatever you're walking through, your God is holding on to you and he will not let you go. This is the peace that protects. It's the gift that Jesus, our King, gives us as he leads us deeper and deeper into the love of the Father, which drives out all fear. Again, when Jesus reigns over us, his peace reigns in us. His peace purifies and his peace protects. And then finally, as we wrap up Micah 4, we learn one more thing. And that is that since Jesus is an eternal king, his peace prevails. Since he is an eternal king, his peace prevails. If you would look one more time at verses 11 to 13, Micah says it this way. Now, many nations are assembled against you, saying, let her be defiled and let our eyes gaze upon Zion. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan, that he has gathered them as sheaves to the threshing floor. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make your horn iron and I will make your hoofs bronze. You shall beat in pieces many peoples and shall devote their gain to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord of the whole earth. Now, what Mike is doing here is he is using the immediate future, what they were getting ready to walk through as God's people. He's using that as a pattern really for the distant future. So he had just told God's people that because of their sin, because of their rebellion, God was going to be sending them into exile, into slavery in Babylon, their enemy nation. But God also promised in verse 10 that he was gonna bring them back, that he was going to give them victory on the other side of defeat. And as Micah brings these pieces together here, he uses the images and the language of the national and very natural war, the, the war that the people had been experiencing and walking through for centuries. He uses that image, that language, to really help them start to understand the spiritual and the supernatural war that had been raging since long before they came on the scene. So we actually see the same thing happening in Psalm chapter two. When David asks, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And then when Jesus' followers 
were attacked when they first started to preach the gospel. In Acts chapter four, when they started proclaiming the good news of the grace and truth of Jesus, that he was the promised Messiah, and they got stopped in their tracks. They got shut down for it by the governing authorities of the day and told, if you continue to do this, we're gonna throw you into prison and we're going to kill you just like we killed Jesus. When they were threatened that way, what we see that they did is they gathered up together. When they were released from prison, they got together as the church and they quoted this Psalm. They went all the way back to Psalm chapter two. They quoted it and then they added their own prayer saying, truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. See, God's enemies thought at the cross that they were winning a victory. They thought that they were taking ground. They thought they were resisting and standing against God's eternal reign. They thought that this was gonna be the last they would ever hear or the last they would ever see from Jesus of Nazareth. But they could not have been more wrong because little did they know that they weren't gathering together to defeat Jesus. No, instead, Jesus was gathering them together so that he could defeat them at the cross. As one commentator said about Micah 4.13, to devote the wealth of an enemy to God was often the last action in holy war. It was a sign that the war was over and a declaration that the victory had been won. In other words, it was the declaration that it is finished and that God's peace prevails. And for all who believe that Jesus meant that when he said it from the cross, if we believe that he meant it really is finished, then we can know that because that's true and through our faith in him, the war is over and our victory has been won. Church, all of God's enemies are going to be defeated. That's the promise that we've been given in God's word. They will either be defeated by faith as God through the cross works to give them faith and to turn them from enemies into children through the blood that he shed and the resurrection that he, that he made to, to secure them and to draw them near. The victory that he made their victory that he shares with his people. They'll either be defeated by faith or they will be defeated by force. When as Paul tells us in 2 Thessalonians, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. All of God's enemies are gonna be defeated, either through faith or by force. And wherever those lines get drawn, no matter how things end up, it's not up to us, it's up to God. But no matter where those lines end up getting drawn, we can know that Jesus, our King, has purchased our victory by his blood, that he is inviting us to rest even now in the truth that it is finished. And he has promised that everyone who comes to him in faith will be able to know his peace that lasts forever. And church, when it really comes down to it, this is what every single one of us needs more than anything else. I don't know your circumstances. I don't know the baggage and the weights that you brought in here with you this morning, but I can say without doubt, that right now in this moment, every single one of us is suffering in our own way. Maybe for you, you're suffering emotionally. Maybe it's because your losses have just felt recently like they're just too much for you to bear up under. Maybe it's because your, your longings just haven't been fulfilled and your expectations haven't been met or because your dreams are starting to seem more like delusions. Like maybe what you were hoping and praying for and pursuing is never going to become reality. Maybe you're suffering emotionally. 
For you, maybe it's more physical. Maybe you're suffering physically because you haven't aged as gracefully as you hoped you would or because the doctors haven't been able to give, give you the answers that you were so much hoping they would give, the answers you know you really need. Or maybe, maybe you're suffering spiritually because faith and obedience just never really seemed to quite line up for you. Or maybe you've always thought that it's all hanging on you and it's all dependent on you. And if you finally get it right, then God's gonna love you and then it's gonna all be fine. Or, and now if you're honest, it just feels like God is paying you back for all that failure that you've experienced for so long, the stuff that you don't even wanna talk about. But what if that's not reality? What if God isn't paying you back? What if God isn't waiting for you to figure it out and to, to make the first move towards him? What if God isn't absent in your pain? What if he isn't far off in your suffering and instead he has a purpose even in that and he is working to make you more and more like Jesus? And what if this morning he is inviting you to full surrender to Jesus as king right here, right now, even in the middle of your pain so that you can experience his peace, the peace that protects, the peace that purifies and the peace that prevails. In Hebrews chapter two, we're reminded that in bringing many sons to glory, God made the founder of our salvation, it is Jesus. He says he made him perfect through suffering. Church, if that was true for our king, then it is going to be true for everyone who submits to him and becomes a part of his kingdom. See, God doesn't promise in this life to take our pain away as much as we wish that's what he gave us. But rather, he promises that even in our pain, even in our suffering, we can know his peace as we follow our savior through suffering and into glory. And the question for all of us, when we're suffering, whether it's emotional or physical or spiritual pain, is simply this. It's who is my real king? Who is your real king? And this morning, if you don't know for sure how you would answer that question, then I would suggest to you that the surest way to know the real answer, the real heart level answer for you is if you're brave enough to look at the hardest thing in your life and then take that out in your mind and just ask, can you truly thank God for that? Because you know that as hard as it is, God's at work. God is with you in it. God sees and knows and cares and loves. And this doesn't change anything. Are you able to look at the hardest thing in life and say, God, thank you I trust you, I love you, and I know that you're with me and that you're enough. Because if you can say that, if you can say yes to that question, if you can thank God even in the middle of your pain, even for the hard things, that means that Jesus is your king. And he is using this to draw you nearer and to make you more and more like him as you grow to know and love and follow him by his grace. But if you can't do that, if you can't yet say yes to that question, if you can't yet thank God for that because that's what's holding you back, then I would just invite you, what I believe Jesus is inviting you to do, is to take that first step towards him even now and to tell him, I need your grace to do this because I cannot do it on my own. And what we all need to understand is that step is only possible because of God's spirit and because of the blood of Christ that was shed on the cross to wash us clean, to purify us, to make us new, and to make sure that we become children of God. Jesus has done the work that we could never do so that we could experience grace that we could never deserve. And church, as we move into our time of response this morning, I just wanna leave you with those two questions. Again, who is my real king? 
And what step of faith is Jesus inviting me to take as I move towards him by his grace this morning? If you'll please pray with me as the band comes back up and then we'll respond to God's word together. Father, thank you.